This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. What is it like in today's world to be a young girl faced with an avalanche of falsehoods coming at her via the Internet or the local news or the falsehoods she believes in her own mind? Well, girls have some unique struggles that we can help them to address as Christian moms or grandmas or Sunday school teachers. And so we're going to get some help with that today from Dana Gresh. Dana is the best-selling author, speaker, and founder of True Girl, formerly known as Secret Keeper Girl, America's most popular Christian tween event. And today we'll be talking about her book, Lies Girls Believe, The Truth That Sets Them Free. And it's so good to talk to you, Dana. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, friend? Doing fine. You know, you obviously talk to so many girls. You hear from so many girls. There's probably nobody who talks to girls on the basis you do as often as you do. What would you say are your greatest concerns today about the lies that young girls are believing? What What is going on right now? Well, I think one of the things that we can see is the symptoms of the lies, and we don't even really realize that they are symptoms of the lies, but today the average young person between the ages of 9 and 17 scores as high on anxiety scales as children who were admitted to clinics for psychiatric disorders in 1957. So we see this significant spike in emotional trauma for girls that age, and it's even, there's been an uptick since about the year 2006, which I don't think it's a mistake that that goes back to the creation of social media, and just comparison and pressure and your brains just being on screens all day long. So we have girls in this condition that's really alarming, that in the 50s we would have said, you need real help, you need medical intervention. And we're just saying, hey, it's normal. Go on. Keep living life. And I believe it's a crisis and it's an evidence that there are lies in their little hearts. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is you hear a lot of Christian parents saying, well, I I need to get my child off social media, get off Instagram, get off Snapchat, get off whatever social media you use that is making you freak out. But there's an addictive nature to it. And tired Mm -hmm. parents. I mean, what do you say to Christian moms about, (laughs) you know, the the issue of a phone? We have bought into that. I was having this conversation, actually, with one of my daughters yesterday who was trying to say that phones are necessary. And I said, no, phones are nice, but they're not (laughs) necessary. And I was reminding her, you know, your great grandma never had a phone. That, that, yeah, that's how right. it was back in the day. It's <laughs> not, so, I mean, what do you do about that mentality that it, it's just you have to be on social media if you're a young girl? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the risks really demonstrate that it's not wise, that there's an uptick in um, eating disorders, body image issues, depression, uh, suicide even has increased dramatically and is being linked many factors contributing to it, but being linked that social media is one of those factors and screen use. And really, even the creators of the apps themselves know that there's a certain age when our brain is ready to discern what's real, what's not real, 
you know, when you really are left out or when you just feel left out, and that those likes don't really mean anything at all. True. <laughs> and so the, 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 the most, all of the social mediums say that you should not be on social media before the age of 13. And even after that age, those first few years, it has to be really closely monitored. They're not quite ready. There's even some um, governmental acts that advise that, hey, listen, these these people creating this stuff, they're not legally allowed to ask for data from somebody before their 13th birthday because there's a risk. Their brains aren't ready. And yet parents are overriding and disregarding that. When we did our survey for A Mom's Guide to Lies Girls Believe and the Lies Girls Believe Project, we found that among Christian moms, about 42 to 41% of 12-year-old girls had smart, either had smartphones with Internet So we can assume that they're using that because they don't need to have the Internet package on their smartphone. Or they have their own personal iPad or tablet with access to the Internet. So we're disregarding the advice of the creators of the apps themselves when we go on there. And you have to know that when you're disregarding that advice, you are putting your daughter at risk of being emotionally unstable. That's the bottom line, period. End of sentence. Hard truth. That's true, though. So how does this tie into some of the lies that girls are taking in these days? Obviously, a lot of the lies that girls believe are lies that have been around since time immemorial. But what about your concerns regarding lies that girls are taking in wherever the source happens to be and trying to show them where lies are coming from and going back to Genesis and talking about the original liar? Yeah, so even so we're talking about emotions. That's how that's where we kind of got the anxiety, the depression, all that stuff. And you look back at Genesis and you see that emotions they're good tools from God. He gave them to us. He created them and when he made his earth, he declared it is good over everything. So our emotions are good tools from God, but they're supposed to help us discern what is true and what is not true. And so when Eve started to feel feel emotional, that's the word, anytime you start to feel something, you should say, what message is God trying to send to me right now? So she started to feel stuff. She started to feel maybe insignificant because when we don't really know what she felt, but she talks to the serpent and the serpent says, hey, don't you know you'll be like God? So did she start to feel like, hey, maybe God isn't being truthful with me and he doesn't want me to be like him and maybe I'm not enough. I don't know, but it if you read between the lines, it looks really like Eve is doing a lot of feeling, not a lot of good thinking, because <laughs> if she knows what's good for her, she'd run from that tree, but she doesn't do that. And so when she stands there and she begins to dwell on what is being said, and that's a really significant thing for all ages, but for this age group, it's not a mis- it's, it's not your fault that you might see an image um, and say, hey, I don't feel like I look like her, or I'm not enough. But it is your fault when you're like, hey, every time I find myself on social media, I start to feel insecure about myself, and I wonder who likes me, and I feel the pressure to post something that everybody's going to comment on. Okay, something's wrong. That's when you back away and you say, my emotions are starting to dictate what I think about. Because when we dwell on something, that's when we're at risk of believing a lie. So Eve dwells on the fact that um, maybe God doesn't really want us. He is withholding something good from us. This Maybe this tree is good, and maybe this tree will make me like him, and it will make me wise. And she listens to what the serpent says. It wasn't her fault that she heard the serpent, but she should have run for cover. Instead, when she dwells on it, she starts to believe the lie that my life would be better with this piece of fruit. And isn't that kind of the lie we believe 
all yep. the time. Yep. My life would be better with this social media. That's what you were just saying, that the crux of the conversation is we can't live without it. <laughs> My life would be better with it. Well, um, maybe that's a sign that there's a lie in your heart. And the lie ultimately is about either I'm not enough or God is not enough. Right? right. Does, don't right. they always come back to that? I'm sure. not enough or God is not enough. Sure. Without this, I'm not enough. And God can't. My, my life couldn't be complete without social media because God couldn't possibly meet my needs any other way. So it always comes back to that. I think the pattern of what we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and how Eve and Adam respond to the serpent, respond to God's guidelines, that answers all our questions about how we're still living in emotional trauma and lies and acting on them and sinning today. Do you have specific guidelines, Dana, that you tend to recommend to girls as to social media use, how much you should do at what age, or or do you kind of try to let the parents decide that? Well, I always say, listen, the first rule is let's obey the rules, right? Right. right. (laughs) So if the social media creators are saying it's not a good idea before your 13th birthday, then Let's trust that because they're not going to definitely, they're not going to make something and say, hey, it would be a good idea if you didn't buy my product and make me money or use my product and make me money unless it really isn't good for you. So we should be trusting that. Then the next thing is, well, how do you know if you're ready when you're 13? Like, why is that? And I don't think the age is the number or, or the standard by which we should judge. I think responsibility is. So when your child has demonstrated, hey, yeah, they are making their bed in the morning. They are doing their homework without being harassed. They are feeding the dog so the dog doesn't die because that's their (laughs) chore. Those are good markers of your child developing responsibility. And that means they might be ready for the responsibility of making good decisions on the Internet. Well, I think that's good. We're going to take a short pause. Dana Gresh is with us. We'll come back talking about her book, Lies Girls Believe. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger, or especially hunger, is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the Word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. 
You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thy word is truth. We know where the source of truth comes from, and that is God Almighty. We're talking with Dana Gress. She is the best-selling author and founder of True Girl and author of the book Lies Girls Believe, which we are discussing. And this is such a, a conundrum, I think, for a lot of Christian parents, the lies that young girls believe. You get into a lot of these lies, Dana. I want to go over some of these with you just so people can get a feel for what you're talking about here. But when we're talking about Eve, as you were a few moments ago, and how Eve and her feelings got her into trouble when she started listening to the liar, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. What do you find to be some of the biggest lies that young girls you talk to are believing about God? Does it come down to God doesn't love me enough or is it I don't trust him? How does it Mm -hmm. tend to play out when you talk to girls about God and their views on God? Well, we surveyed 1,500 tween girls And we're out with them every day. We're on tour all year long, hitting about 100 cities a year. So we're kind of living in girl world all the time. We kind of knew where the lies might be, but we wanted to pinpoint with accuracy. So we surveyed 1,500 of them. And one of them that really was sad and alarming to us was the lie that um, God loves me. I know they knew that God loved them. They were sure the vast majority of them knew that God loved them. But they absolutely, a very significant number of them believe the lie that God only loves me when I'm good. And isn't that true of us as adults too, that we carry shame in specific areas of our lives that make us feel really distant from God. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to us that this was popping up at such a young age in girls age 7 through 12, that they're like, hey, I didn't obey my parents, or I have this secret about, you know, because sometimes it was silly things, like I'm not supposed to read in my bedroom after my mom and dad tuck me in, but I have a light in there that I turn on in secret, and I read under the covers, and so I feel like God doesn't love me, and my mom and dad don't love me when I do that. And wow, if Satan can put them and us in a place where we hide our sin because when we're bad, we can't be loved, <laughs> then he puts us on a trajectory of a shame-filled life of hiding. And anytime we're hiding stuff, we're not going to live in the grace and the freedom that God needs for us to live in. And we're not going to get the help we need when we do run into really big, bigger, scarier things. I mean, there's a lot worse things that a girl can do than read her book and disobey her parents after the lights are turned out, right? Sure, sure. Um, and so when she's 16 or 20 and she gets into a much deeper place where she needs to tell her parents of the temptation she's struggling with, she's not going to do that unless we rip up this lie. And the, the truth is that God loves us all the time, no matter what. Romans 5, 8 says that he loved us while we were still sinners. Amen. So yep. clearly he loves us when we do bad things. And we want girls to know that God loves 
them unconditionally. Well, right. How can you possibly miss the truth of God's love when you look at the cross? He sent us Jesus because we were sinners. and that's. Mm-hmm. But again, that gets back to basic Bible truth. When you think of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It seems to me that the, the, the awareness that a young girl would have about when I'm bad, I'm in trouble. That's not a bad thought in and of itself to use to correct right. that girl and say, but your awareness of sin is what God put in you so you would repent and confess it and he will forgive you. I mean, there's a happy ending if you can follow that thought process all the way through. Yes, exactly. He, g- he gave us that awareness of sin and guilt as a good tool to bring us to confession and repentance to right. each other and mm-hmm. to him. But when it turns into hiding, then it becomes a tool of the enemy. It becomes shame-based, and we want to rip that up as quickly as we can by the root. Well, that's right. What about all of these pressures, as we talked about social media earlier, little girls, I don't think girls ever outgrow this, but you always want to, you know, look your best and, oh, that model is so pretty and I don't look anything like her. There's a lot of this that goes on and it's quite intense when you're a young girl, I think, especially. How do you dispense with some of those lies that girls believe that I'm not valuable, nobody, I'll never get a boyfriend because I'm not as pretty Mm -hmm. as her. In the age of selfies, that's got to be torturous for a lot of these young girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we're we're what we're seeing is that there's um, increased uh, depression and eating disorders as a result of this selfie culture that they live in. And we can really correlate the, um, those body image issues. Uh, the average eating di- disorder clinic patient um, 10, 20 years ago was 15 years old, and that was before social media and those things. Now the average age is 10 years oh, old. Oh, no. And there are patients as young as five years old in there. So oh. the pressure to be beautiful has really increased dramatically um, with Photoshop and, and, and lighting and, and picture perfecting. And so it's really important that we allow these girls to know the truth. I mean, God created our desire to be beautiful. He expresses himself in, beautiful, in beauty. That's why we have a beautiful world to look at. Right. So beauty is not bad. But when you fixate and hyperfixate on this external beauty or comparison or standards that are not attainable, then that really becomes unhealthy and hurt, hurtful. What we found when we surveyed the girls was a deep lie, and that was, if you're beautiful, you're worth more. So what really is at the heart of it is, what is my worth Um, when they're thinking I'm fat and I'm ugly, or I like my freckles, but I wish I was taller? These are some of the things they said to us. Uh, We really had to start to take their worth to a different place, not to their face, not to their hips, but to their heart. And so in the book, Lies Girls Believe, we, we focus it on a real simple verse, First Samuel 16, 7. The Lord doesn't see the way we see them. We don't, he doesn't see people and things the way we see, we see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if we can, from a young age, help these girls see that kindness and helpfulness and a quiet answer, um, unselfish response when you don't get the things that you want, those things are far more beautiful than the outside stuff. And I, you know what? I have to catch myself because with my own daughters, I, it's, I love to tell them that they're beautiful because I look at them and they are. Yes. But I challenge parents as I wrote this chapter and thought about it. I was like, wow, I want to be the mom who compliments them when they're kind. Yeah. I want to be the mom that compliments them 
when they're submissive. I want to be the mom that tells them, wow, you're so beautiful that you allowed that person to shine. When you have a lot of talents and you could have had that moment too, but you let them shine, we need to make sure that we are balancing or probably over emphasizing their internal beauty as opposed to their external beauty. That's really smart because I I was going in that direction when you talk about how to help your daughter, help your little girl. The the experience or the comments of their peers matter so much to them, especially when they're tweens. How much of a difference do the parents make Uh, just in making those sorts of comments, encouraging comments at home? Because I think there are many parents who think, well, my daughter doesn't really care what I think. She's 13. I mean, she only cares about her friends, but I don't think that's completely true. Well, I think we make a big difference in everything that um, there have been several surveys about the sexual habits of teenagers and what influences them most and what seems to influence them more than anything. Uh, And nobody hardly believes this until you get deep, deep into the science, the social science and see why, um, is the opinion of their parents, what their parents are saying and how they're talking to them. And in one survey by USA Today, um, they ask teenagers, where do you want to learn about sex? And 80% of them said mom and dad. And so I think they're looking to mom and dad for their value formation, whether that's beauty, whether that's relationships, whether that's theology of gender. Uh, What we say and think matters to them, and they are aware that it matters to them. And so I think when we sit down and really get into their hearts on those issues, it influences them really really greatly. Yeah, yeah. And and really getting a solid foundation for your daughter or maybe a, a young girl you care about, you work with at church or a Bible study or something like that. When you are starting out to try to say, I really want at this critical age, this girl who is a tween now, to understand Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, he rose from the dead, and that makes a difference in your life. What would you say to that particular woman or or father, mother, what have you, who says, I want to give this child a solid foundation that will help her through the tween years to understand that her, you know, her foundation being in Jesus Christ is absolutely everything and will help her sort out the truth from the lies? Well, I mean, that's our heart as parents, and that's what we want. And the sad thing is we're not in the driver's seat of that decision. They are. Yes. As I surveyed uh, moms, it was really interesting. I said to moms, hey, these are moms, these are Christian moms who want very much to do what you just said, right? And I said, hey, are are tween girls today in more trouble morally than when you were a tween? And 80% of them said yes. Mm -hmm. And I said, what about your daughter? Is she in more trouble than you were? 80% of them said no, she's she's doing better. Hmm. I thought, wait, this kid (laughs) can't have both of those answers and everybody be right there because... 80% of somebody's daughters has to be in trouble. It's not just the world. It's our kids showing up in the statistics. So when I started to talk to them about areas of, like, submission, they're like, ugh, we're having a problem in that area. When I started to talk to them about, does your daughter value the the roles of wife and being a mom? Or they're like, no. Even Mm -hmm. as an 11-year-old, she's, like, hyper-consumed with her career already. And she feels the pressure of what college she's going to go to. So I think... To answer your question in kind of a backwards way, but I think helps and really gets to the root of it, is the first thing we have to do is realize that our kids are at risk as much as we were. Our kids are at risk as much as everybody else's kids. The enemy doesn't play fair. 
Just because they're growing up in a Christian home doesn't believe they're not going to believe lies. Just because they're homeschooled doesn't mean they're not going to believe lies. We found that homeschooled girls tended to believe different kinds of lies, but they were still believing lies, Mm -hmm. and they were still hurtful. Um, Admitting in humility as a Christian mom, ah, they're but by God. (laughs) You know, that, if you don't do that, you're going to miss really important cues when your daughter is in trouble or when she's ready to make important decisions like about her faith or about what she believes. So starting in humility, that is the first step, I think, in helping our daughters live that fulfilled, Christ-centered life. Good advice. Dana Gresh, Lies Girls Believe is the name of the book. You can check out mytruegirl.com. Dana, so great to have you with us. Thanks again for being here. My pleasure. All right, God bless you. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, this is an interesting verse because of that clause, if possible, but yet we Christians are to be peacemakers because we worship the Prince of Peace, who is our peace. Is there a way, though, to have healthy relationships, conflict resolution, and a life of peace based upon biblical principles? We're going to tackle that today with Brian Noble, who serves as the executive pastor of the Valley Assembly of God Church in Spokane, Washington. He is also the executive director of Peacemaker Ministries and is out with a book called The Path of a Peacemaker. Brian, it's great to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fine. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit for those people who don't know much about Peacemaker Ministries, what you guys are all about and what you do. All right. So for the last 30 years, Peacemaker Ministries has helped equip and assist Christians to respond to conflict biblically. In a simple form, we create cultures of peace and productivity. That's great. That's well said. Yeah. Very, very condensed. I love it. So when you're <laughs> when you're talking about dealing with conflict in churches, I'm sure uh, that there are all kinds of conflicts that come up. But a lot of people will say, well, how do you know when outside help is needed, that the conflict in your church is to the point where you can't resolve it yourselves? Well, I like to say call us sooner than later, simply because we're oftentimes called very late in the game. And uh, the reality is we all need uh, times where we can brainstorm with someone else or talk through an idea. And having been a pastor for 20 years, not that I have every idea in the world, but I've seen a lot of situations. And maybe if it's earlier, we can just have simply uh, a brainstorming session with a pastor or a group of elders to try to resolve the conflict. But if you're in major conflict that's going around and around and around, it's very important that you give us a call. Matthew 18 is clear to get outside help where we, we can help each other in the body of Christ um, move forward in the things that God would have and get you back on track for sharing the gospel with people. Well, again, anybody who's ever been in a church in their lives will know that there is often a lot of conflict at the church level, whether it's little conflict or major conflict. I'm curious to ask you, though, what are some of the most common sorts of conflicts uh, with which you guys deal when churches call you? What are some of the most common things that are the source of conflict? I would say the primary 
primary conflict would be between elders and their and their pastor. Um, oftentimes, there's different uh, expectations, especially where maybe an elder or a board, wh- whatever title that may be used within the local congregation, um, especially when a board has been silent for a number of years and maybe didn't say what they truly thought, and then all of a sudden they start saying what they think, and then now there's tension because the pastor has thought that that behavior was acceptable for an extended period of time. <laughs> and so that's typically what we see in conflict and, and the type of phone calls we get. There are the rare exceptions where either a child's been hurt or there's been embezzlement or there's been those kind of extreme situations. Um, but a lot of it simply has to do with how does the pastor interact with uh, their board or their elders or deacons, depending on the, the polity. Yeah. Is this oftentimes or is it most often happening in independent churches that cannot appeal to an outside denominational body? That is very, very common. So um, a lot of non-denominational churches don't have you know someone to go up to. But I will say that uh, probably... Uh, 60% of our casework is with that type of uh, organization. The other 40% uh, is, is with those who do are, are part of a denomination, and sometimes the denomination has called us and said, we, we simply want someone who's neutral, who has some outside insight that can come in and help us understand the culture that has been created, help us understand how to transform that culture into something new and, and, and thrive in again. And so, um, you know, we, we do see it on both sides, but oftentimes it is when... Uh, you know, a local congregation has no one to appeal to to make yeah. the final decision. Right. They just want peace. They they just want it all resolved. And you exactly. Yeah. You talk in your book about a path to a lifestyle of peace and you talk about these different steps. I want to talk about this step of tension. That's where it all begins. Yeah. But you actually have also said it can work for you. Tension isn't always a bad thing. Can you outline what you're talking about there when you are talking about tension and where the path to peace begins? Absolutely. Oftentimes when in churches we have spiritualized a lack of tension, and yet our Bibles are filled with stories where God uses tension to bring about better character, to bring about a better circumstance, uh, people who honor Him. So for instance, in James chapter 1 it says, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then it says this, Let endurance have its perfect result. So peacemakers like to say this, healthy tension brings us closer together, and unhealthy tension pulls us apart. And, and so God uses those tensions. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and He uses those tensions in life to form within us um, the character that He needs to move us forward. And so many of our organizations, our churches that we have, you know, they don't allow healthy tension or healthy dialogue, as Paul would say, speaking the truth in love, and so they kind of get plateaued. And what we need to do is begin to embrace the healthy stuff and um, negate the unhealthy stuff. Yeah. Now, it sounds great. I'm a little unclear, though. What is healthy tension? How do I put tension in the healthy category? Explain what that is about. So healthy tension is like iron sharpening iron, right? So one person sharpens another. Uh, Healthy tension is clear communication, but is filled with with the gospel. So sometimes as Christians, because we want to be nice, Yes. Uh, you know, to to our pastor's face, we'll say, et cetera, you know, this is how I feel. But behind their back, we have much more of an articulated viewpoint of whatever took place. Right. And so healthy tension is living authentically, but with compassion. And it brings us closer together. Um, we like to use the illustration of like a, a Sunday school class that one wants to go through uh, Romans, another one wants to go through John. And, and really, that's, they're both great books in the Bible. 
but we need to have the dialogue of what would serve the people the best. And sometimes we avoid the, the dialogue or we create two Sunday school classes and, or, you know, we divide the church or what have you. Uh, even though that may not be a bad option if, if uh, two classes may not be a bad option, but you get what I'm saying. It's, right, right. It's avoiding the conversation instead of really coming in and saying, listen, Let's dialogue. What what do our people need? Are are you know how can we serve them best and bring them the gospel? Um, I think healthy tension is collaborative. Um, it, it it's like a football team. If you didn't have tension in a football game, it would be a very boring game, right? Yes. yes. Uh, but but what makes it exciting is, you know, we're we're all headed down on the field in the same direction. Someone's calling the plays and the shots as we go, and we're all. Uh, you know, as in, in Romans chapter 12, we're all functioning in the roles that God's given us to move us forward so the gospel goes out. And, uh, and so that's what healthy tension is. It's, it's understanding our, our, uh, our blind spots. Um, many, many of Paul's writings towards the end of his books, he creates tension when he says, so-and-so deserted me. This other person yes. did this. Yes. You know, and he, he creates this <laughs> tension of, of moving us forward. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because when you're touching on the subject of not wanting to address things, I think that's a pretty common thing. At least it is in the churches that I've attended over the years because yeah. we're Christians. We're nice. We don't want to have a right. fight. We don't want to bring anything up. And yet the tension persists. It's just unspoken. And then it seeps through oftentimes in bad ways. So how how much do you see that sort of thing being the main cause of the conflict that had you dealt with it early on in a straightforward way, it probably would not have risen to this insane level that it becomes later. It, it's, it's exactly right. So what we find in most churches, uh, elders or boards can stay silent for about four years. Oh. Some are really good. They can stay silent for like 10 years, but most of the time it's four years, and then they rise up and say their opinion. Well, what's happened is I, I've had so many pastors tell me this. They never told me that it was a problem. Wow. Like my leadership was a problem. They never told me that when I did this, that drove everyone nuts. You know, and, and I, I believe them. Yeah. Because I, I, I've, I've done this. We do these assessments, right? Right. And uh, on the assessment, the board member would say, "No, I've never said anything." But now they want to call for their resignation <laughs> over something they never spoke about to them about. <laughs> I mean, it's. I, I, I'm not trying to make it simplified, but it's kind of insane. You know, it's like really like if you would have addressed it the first time it happened. You know, Pastor, when you get up, uh, get done preaching, and you immediately leave the church, uh, it says to us that maybe that you don't care about us, right? <laughs> yes. And, and, and we would really appreciate it if you would mingle with the people. Yeah. But instead, they let it go on for four years or five years, and then they're like, well, he, just, he doesn't have a pastor's heart. Oh, well, my goodness. I, you know, or I, I mean, I can give you other examples, uh, you know lot like that. But yeah. Brian, it's, so it's crazy. Brian, hang on a moment. We do need to pause for a quick break. We'll come back with Brian Noble. The Path of a Peacemaker is his book. We'll return right after this on Janet Mefford today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Women in crisis pregnancies today are often under tremendous pressure to abort. But he was like, you're not ready for another baby. And at that moment, I felt that I'm not going to be able to be a mom to this baby. So I came to the pregnancy clinic. She said they got a heartbeat. That changed my life just from that ultrasound picture. 
These are the voices that a young mom in crisis hears. She wants to make the right choice, but society and those around her are telling her that a preborn baby is not a life. This is where the Ministry of Preborn steps in. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, shining a light into a mother's womb and introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside her. I'm going to keep my baby and I'm going to be a great mom. Join Preborn in helping young moms in crisis. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit health care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Boy, it would be good to have some biblical advice on healthy relationships and conflict resolution and learning to live a life of peace. We are to pursue peace. And Brian Noble is here to help us do it. The book is called The Path of a Peacemaker. He is also executive director of Peacemaker Ministries. I was laughing a little bit, Brian, before we went into the break because you were talking about the fact that oftentimes with conflict, you'll have elders, for example, never outlining the expectations that they have for the pastor and then not saying anything for years. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're in trouble and the pastor says, you never told me anything. And I thought with the example you gave of the pastor leaving right after the sermon and not interacting with anybody, and I thought my first question would be, why is it that the pastor doesn't want to stick around after the sermon? That I mean, that right there seems to indicate there are problems that are unspoken. Well, it is. And, and sometimes what we forget is that pastors are human beings, right? They There are some pastors that are uh, introverts and some are extroverts, right? Yes. And, and so... Sometimes it's taken all of their energy just to get up in front of a, a, a group of people, especially if they're an introvert. And so they're exhausted. They're spent by the time they've done that sermon, and they just they need to recuperate. Um, and so it's like, how do we have that give and take where we create expectations that really help people and understand each other? Others are extroverts. Like, like me, I get drained when I'm traveling by myself. I get that's so draining to me, to, you know, because I love being around people. Um, but that that's just my personality. That's yeah. not uh, that doesn't make one better or worse. And and sometimes I'm the opposite. I can be annoying when people are like, okay, Pastor, we just need to calm down here. A little bit, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, but we need to know those blind spots. Um, I can remember a board one time. A board member said to me, Brian, do you realize that when you walk in the room, oftentimes you end up dominating the conversation? And I was like. Thank you so much for sharing that because I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was like I need to serve others by being a little bit more quiet, being engaged in what, you know, what others are saying, not interrupting, you know. And so we all have our blind spots and, and if we work together as a team, 
um, we can grow in those things. And that's that's that healthy tension I'm talking about. Yeah, that's really good. And it seems some of that could be alleviated if these elders put it in writing, right? I mean, there will be things <laughs> that wouldn't come up that you wouldn't think to right. put in writing, but this is the expectation we have for our pastor. I mean, do you do a lot of that kind of stuff saying, come on, put this stuff in writing, and when the, the pastor takes the job, he knows exactly what the expectations are? We we So one of the things we ask when, when they're in co- in conflict, we'll say, can you show your, share your documents with us, your, your bylaws, your job descriptions, your key performance indicators? You know, we, we want to see those things. And unfortunately, the reality is they have the bylaws, but nothing else. Or they have the, you know, the Constitution, but nothing else. And, and, and then I'll say, well, when's the last time you read these? Um, and, and oftentimes there's a, quite a distance between the, when they've actually read those documentations and, and, and their implementation of them. Um, and so, you know, I just have found as I've managed pastors, laying out those key performance indicators is so important. Like, we want a holistic pastoral approach. In other words, we want you to engage the whole congregation no matter what age the, the person is in front of you. Um, that's what we tell our youth pastors. You're not here just to manage youth. You're here to love the elderly. You're here to love the babies that come, you know, all, all, everything in between. You're a pastor of the whole thing. Now, you're going to focus on Wednesday nights, on the youth, but um, but on Sunday morning, we want you stopping and talking to people and engaging, and it it just brings clarity. That's good. That's really good. And everybody's coming from a different background. Everybody, as you talk right. about under the story word that you're you're outlining your plan for peace, and you're talking about the the story where you're coming from, where the other person on the other side of the conflict may be coming from, those kinds of issues. But ultimately, I know you're really emphasizing going back to biblical core values. And I'm curious right. about that. When you are guiding a church along the path of peace and you're trying to resolve a conflict or at least help them to resolve the conflict, what biblical right. core values do you stress to them? as you're working through it well oftentimes we look at what they've already they've already declared right so a lot of a lot of churches have core values that they've written down and I'll ask what are they and off, more often than not they they say well we have that written down somewhere let me let me find it and I'm like whoa, whoa whoa I understand you have it written down go let's go get that but before we get that just tell me what what is the natural byproduct of your church and they struggle they struggle with those things so we bring them back to uh, four things, that the Father uh, is with them, the Heavenly Father is with them, God's presence, that God's character is a character, that He's a good God, and that our identity is in Christ Jesus, and that we are called peacemakers, right? Uh, and that's an identity statement as well. And and so we bring them back to those four things, like God's with you during this conflict, He's a good God, and that you are a child of God, and that you, uh, because the Prince of Pe- Peace dwells within you, you are uh, naturally a peacemaker. And so that's where we bring them back to. Um, and then we try to reemphasize whatever maybe they have written down or they agreed upon, but, you know, uh, those values that they have. Yeah, that's so important, because if you're not building everything upon the foundation of the Bible, where are you? And that, that probably is a problem of drifting as well, I would imagine, in some congregations. It is. It is. In fact, in this part, when we're doing some, when we're doing casework, and casework is when we're helping a church, um, we'll we'll uh, say, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to stop and we're going to pray for each other and read scripture over each other. And what's interesting is here we have two people who have maybe been uh, gossiping or slandering or at least saying unkind things about each other. Now sitting face to face, they're praying with each other. They're reminding each other that they're children of God. And I'll just tell you, they start crying, hmm. because the the thing that they remember most was 
the injustice they did, the the social media posts that they made, or whatever it might you know whatever might have been in that situation. And now they're saying, you know, uh, I just want to remind you, you are a child of God, and I want to remind you that you're you know back and forth. Can I pray with you? And yes, let's pray together. And and there's a lot of different traditions on how that takes place, um, you know, in different movements, but but we allow them to express it in those ways where it's like. And they and whether they pray in their head or they pray out loud, um, but they they pray for each other and and encourage each other. That's important. That's really important. Yeah. I, you know what else I really like that you talk about is the power of overlooking. You know, we yeah. don't have to turn every molehill into a mountain. What sort of advice do you give to other Christians about? You know, there's a category where you can just let it go. How, how do you guide people on that? Because that line is different for everybody. It is. And, and really, you know, that proverb uh, uh, that talks about it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense, it doesn't give the systematic, uh, you know, like, well, this is the measurement when you overlook. Right. But here, here's a couple things that Peacemaker says. Uh, is it offending God? If, if someone is offending God or sinning against God, you know, we have other scripture that says go to them, right? So mm-hmm. we can't overlook that. Um, is it a repeated pattern of behavior, right? We, we'd want to go to them if it's repeated. Um, and then, and then finally, am I carrying that offense on a day-to-day basis? In other words, you know, I, I constantly keep dwelling on it, and, and we need to we need to talk about it. So those are kind of our three simple criteria: is it an actual sin? It, you know, is it is it something that's hurting others, or is it hurting me? And and we we we'll come back and we and we talk to it through it, uh, hopefully with a gracious conversation. Yeah, that's really important because you want to try to bring people together if you can. And and I don't know, people, you know, people are sinful. They can get stubborn. They can be unreasonable. We all are like that at times. But you yeah. know, there are those conflicts that don't get resolved. We see this every time we read about a church split or we see a pastor right. leaving or whatever. There was a scandal. What do you do when peace isn't possible and you're faced with a church that's kind of a bombed out emotional mess because of one conflict or another and has to find a path forward to continue to exist and to continue to be faithful to the Lord? I mean, that's not that can be a really precarious situation. It can. And and so first, I, I would I say this. Let's look at an eternal perspective. Um, we will have more days with that group of people, whole and complete, because we'll be in eternity with them. And the work that Jesus does based upon faith and grace that we have nothing to do with, you know, that we will have that opportunity. So we have an eternal perspective, eternal hope. And then secondly, we have examples of Paul and Barnabas, um, where, you know, they had to separate for a while. And and, and that's on this side of, of heaven and, and, you know, all of our fallenness. But we also know that Paul later on in scriptures kind of acknowledges, man, maybe I overreacted and, you know, send Marcus with me with the jacket, you know, or whatever. And so I would just say to you that sometimes we need a time out as adults, and that's okay. That shouldn't be our go-to, though. I mean, we, we should really be able to work through our differences because it's not based upon us, it's based upon the gospel. Um, and and then, if nothing else, we have eternity uh to, to look forward to. And I'm always careful on this because there are situations where domestic violence have, you know, has come up or abuse, right. uh, physical abuse. Right. Um, it's not, there's nothing wrong with getting yourself to a safe place, you know? Um, and I, I know that sometimes abusers use the scriptures to their advantage to make people feel guilty. And I would just say, you know, uh, be careful of that, get outside help, get someone to make sure that you are in a safe place. 
Very good advice. Very good advice. The Path of a Peacemaker is the name of the book. You can check it out at peacemaker.training. Brian Noble spending time with us. And it was great to have you here, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. And you have a blessed day. You too. God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us here on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to have you with us. And we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.